Welcome to the Tactics Meeting, Episode 31, International Bird Rescue, with Barbara Callahan, Senior Director of Response and Preparedness Services, and J.D. Bergeron, Chief Executive Officer. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to International Bird Rescue. We have Barbara Callahan. Uh, welcome to the program, Barbara. Thank you so much. And we have J.D. Bergeron uh, from International Bird Rescue. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. We're glad to be here. So let's start with, with J.D. J.D., how long have you been with International Bird Rescue, and how did you get into the wildlife rescue business? Yeah, I've been with International Bird Rescue for six and a half years. Uh, I came to the organization quite late in its, its uh, development, about 44 years in. Uh, there was uh, a transition and the board really wanted to make sure that uh, the next director was going to be somebody who was very focused on the organization and its growth, while uh, so ma many of the teammates were uh, deeply experienced with the spill response side. So that's actually why we have Barbara here. Her uh, depth of experience in spill response uh, is um, pretty much par none, or par very few in the world. And uh, I am here to help make sure that the organization continues to deliver um, into what is a very changing dynamic in the world. Well, it sure is a changing dynamic. People are consolidating, the rules are changing. It's a, it's a fast moving target. So I think your, your board went down the right road. And Barbara, experience second to none, I hear. JD just said it. <laughs> that, he did say that, thank you, uh, JD, but it really means I've been around a long time. Um, and, and our world is changing. We, uh, we had some opportunities in the early days that probably wouldn't, come around today, but gave us tremendous experience. So Barbara, how long have you been in the wildlife uh, I, rescue? I think, I'm pushing, I think I'm pushing 25 years with bird rescue. I was a wildlife rehabilitator for 10 years before I came to bird rescue. And, um, and I'm a biologist, so it's what I do. I've, I've loved birds my whole life. And it's not just birds, right? Tell, tell me a little about International Bird Rescue. What, what is the scope of the wildlife work that you, you do? Yeah, the, the name can be deceiving. Um, our specialty are birds that live in and near water. Um, obviously, our background comes out of oil spills, and birds that live in the water are the ones usually most affected by oil spills. But this organization has washed mammals, muskrats, beavers, we've washed reptiles, snakes, amphibians. Um, really, it is uh, about our day-to-day -day specialty being waterproofing and water birds. Uh, but in an acute crisis, we will deal with any animal, any wildlife that is impacted, so long as the regulations allow it. So of course, we work with partners on things like sea otters and marine mammals, but we, we certainly have protocols set up to um, build a system that deals with any animal that comes in. And Barbara, who are your clients for the most part? Are they solely oil transporters, stores, or do you have a Not, broad, broader range of clients than that? 
We do have a, a broader range. Certainly our oil industry partners are, um, you know, have been by our side for many years. Some of them even from the very beginning days. I'm sure JD will talk about our, our inception and, um, and also uh, governments, sometimes related businesses who certainly the Osro community has um, brought wildlife in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we really didn't even get in the room. And today wildlife almost always has a seat at the table. And that's really critical um, because, you know, as we, you and I talked, Dan, those hours or minutes are ticking. As soon as there's oil in the environment, we wanna protect those animals. So um, we do so much with oil industry and there are governments and, um, and other companies that sometimes they use us for things outside of oil impact. Maybe, um, maybe they've got settling ponds or um, that they wanna keep wildlife away from or maybe they've just got animals nesting near them and they need some solutions because that's really what we're good at, solutions. All right, well, JD, let's talk about its uh, IBR's inception. What is its history? How long has it been in existence? This is actually our 50th year. The organization uh, essentially came together in response to a major oil spill, about 400,000 gallons of crude oil spilling outside the Bay Bridge, or sorry, excuse me, the Golden Gate Bridge uh, in San Francisco. Uh, at the time, uh, folks, I think, were, were pretty up in arms from a spill that had happened just two years earlier in Santa Barbara. That spill led to the creation of Earth Day and a whole lot of other efforts. Um, I think this was the one where people realized, you know what, if something's going to happen, they need to rally. And newscasts from the day talk about hippies and long hairs coming down to the beach to help out. Um, our founder was a registered nurse that probably fit that category. Uh, she took the rigors and protocols of human care and said, you know what, nobody knows what to do. But if we bring some process and we try and we keep experimenting, we will, we will figure things out. Those early days photos show seabirds sitting on wood chips, um, things like kerosene being used to wash them. Those were best practices at, at the time. Obviously, um, the whole organization has been built on always trying to find a better way, always trying to strive to solve a problem. Um, I think one of, one of the benefits of having two full-year um, wildlife clinics, one in the Los Angeles area, one in the San Francisco Bay, is that we're constantly learning. We constantly get a species that just when you think 120 species is enough, you find one that you've never worked with before. Uh, this year, it was a young Cassin's auklet. We had never gotten a chick before. Um, and so we learned from that. We also raised some uh, Western snowy plovers, which are federally threatened uh, from eggs. Uh, eggs had been abandoned. The things we learned there actually were useful in a spill that we were responding to just, well, we're still responding to, but there were oiled snowy plovers just a, a few weeks ago. So you guys down in Orange County right now? Yes. Uh, well, we're, we're at this point, we're mostly supporting the in-facility care, but our team was supporting search and collection. And I think we still have a few folks that are um, on these hotshot teams if, if animals are being seen. Barbara, what was your first spill? Uh, it was a, a fish oil spill out of Monterey Bay. 
Um, that's the first go away spill. I, I was living in Alaska at the time, which I was born and raised there, spent 50 plus years there. Um, and I worked the um, Pribilof spill, the citrus spill. We called it the Pribilof spill because it was really an unknown spill for the first week, 10 days. Then they found uh, the citrus ship in, in port in Dutch Harbor and found that it had had some ship, ship trouble. But interestingly, there was no oil on the beach and the local community in the Pribilof Islands we're calling Fish and Wildlife saying there's all these eiders on the beach with oil on them. And they never did find any oil in the water or on the beach. It all landed on this raft of eiders and um, hugely successful spill for us. 82 or 84% of those eiders were um, released back. And JD, you should tell the end of that story. Yeah, I was gonna say you're missing a perfect opportunity. Dan, this is, uh... We, we banned our birds when they are released so that at some point in the future, if they come into human contact, whether through research or if someone finds their carcass at the end of their life, um, we, we get information from that. Um, this bird, or one of these birds from this 1996 spill was found 23 years later. Um, folks are, are constantly trying to claim that you know, the, the, this is all smoke and mirrors. There's no such thing as oiled wildlife response. And we are here to say that is absolutely untrue. That that was one of several eiders that basically set um, records for the longest ex extant uh, band return uh, timeframe. So we don't know exactly how old that bird was, but it, it was out for 23 years after being washed and rehabilitated and released. And we, that's just one of, of a number of those stories that uh, we know rock solid. Um, these birds go back and do what they're meant to be doing, breeding and being part of a population. Um, and it really matters. That is a hugely inspirational story. I had Isn't no it? idea yeah. that those birds had that long a lifespan. And of course, they didn't give you a birth date when you tagged them, no. right? So could have been a year knew. old, could have been five years old. We don't know. We do know it. We think it was a year old plus. But you're right. It could have been a four-year-old bird. Probably not, just judging by by, by the, um, the markings. But uh, it is hugely inspirational. There were many others as well that we know of um, that happens to be a species that is hunted for subsistence. And for, I think, other people hunt them as well. Um, and, uh, you know, here it was. It gave us tremendous information about that event. So that was my first fill up. And, you know, we rehab the birds in Anchorage. And we've long um, tried to educate those we work with, particularly the, the rule makers, the trustees for wildlife, um, that it is more important to centralize a, a response um, than to try and do it out in Bush, Alaska, or Bush wherever. And um, meaning that we medically stabilize the animals close to where they're found. And once they're stable, medically stable, they can really travel six or eight hours with no problem. And we transported all uh, of those eiders, over 300 king eiders, a few uh, long-tailed ducks and, um, and spectacled eiders, but mostly kings. Um, transported them in a C-130, um, you know. I was going to ask you what you what you flew in we, there. I, I've, been, I've been to the Privilofs. I've been on St. Yep. Paul and St. George. Many is the time. 
and I yeah. would not want to have to rehabilitate wildlife on They're those just, islands. Exactly, but even if you're not on an island, if you aren't close to the infrastructure, I mean, this is labor intensive and it's in it, you, you have to have infrastructure. You know, we not only de logistically, you know, that's you have to support the the event and you also need to support your your staff and all those things. So you need to have a place that you could do that, but also commercial aircraft or airport and a place we can get, um, you know, fish food. We don't always use fish, but when we need it, certainly you want a, a fish market, but also there are many things that come just from the, the, the store down the street. Yeah, you want to you want to be able to go to yeah Ace Hardware, Home Depot. Yes, exactly. I want another tub. I want a length of yeah. garden hose. I want whatever. Exactly what we buy there, and um, we need lots of water, fresh water, and the ability to capture that wastewater once it's not. Now it's not just oily water; it's oily soapy water. So that has to be, um, you know, put in a tank and, and backed off and, and processed then. And so you, you want to do it correctly. And so you need a facility. You need to, don't get me wrong, we've done great work in places we've retrofit a building, um, but that is time consuming. And of course, we, you know, it's amazing that sometimes we've done it just in a couple of days, three days, we've got a building up and functional. But in places where we have a standing full-time building, that's great. And um, the infrastructure around us and the Pribilof spill was really an early um, indication that we could very successfully uh, transport stable animals and rehabilitate them in acreage. And then we got them all back out to the Pribilofs, which was great. Well, yeah. That makes, so that that makes was total sense. I, I think people do need to understand that we don't have to do every single thing sitting on the shoreline right next yeah. to the spill it's, itself. You know, I've got, we're going to have, you know, hundreds of, of volunteers that are going to be part of, of wildlife, yeah. you know, to try to, to house them and feed them and transport them to St. Paul or Dutch Harbor makes zero sense. Right. right. Makes zero sense. And when we can, we do manage a volunteer for it, but we do that around the re rehabilitation center. And um, we actually, I'm in Ketchikan today because I'm about to do a training here this week um, for people who are interested in responding and um, you have to support them, absolutely. Now we do a lot of drills around uh, oil spills and we include wildlife and if you listen to the podcast with uh, Jenny from Focus Wildlife, we talked a little bit about, about this, how we end up focusing on, on birds and leave a huge array of species out of, our, out of our planning. Washington State has relatively new regulations that include the, the need to uh, I locate and track and uh, I guess I'm not sure haze is really the right word, but orcas. It is deter. Mm -hmm. Deter, right? So we got a lot of a lot of new things going on. JD said, "Yeah, things are changing, and they are. You know, we're required to begin a, a wildlife assessment in Washington within an hour. So let's mm -hmm. talk about activation a, a little bit because this can't be, can no longer be 
an afterthought, right? It has to be, you know, I, I call my Osro for on-water recovery and I call my wildlife contractor because we have to get, get out there. It's so important that we understand that this has to move forward quite quickly. I'm, I'm training all of my uh, incident commanders and qualified individuals along this lines. And I'm hoping that this podcast will help out in that regard. So Fantastic. Barbara, can, you, can you talk about activation? I pick up the phone, I call you, what when happens? You call now? our 800 number, you're gonna get a live senior spill manager, probably myself or my deputy, Michelle. Um, and uh, that number is 24 seven. And you're gonna tell me what the incident is, where it is and get us activated we get on the ground as soon as possible. As you mentioned, Washington State has new regulations. That assessment by somebody who knows what they're looking at, um, you know. And in Washington, Department of Ecology is very, very integrated into spill response. They're going to have their guys out there as well, and the responsible party is is also going to need to bring their wildlife contractor to bear and. Um, and to have teams out there looking. I just want to add something to this, Dan. You, you talked about how we drill wildlife. I think that all of us who do this kind of work, one thing we all agree on is drilling wildlife more. It's when you look at, you know, the front page of the newspaper has a, a completely oiled pelican, the whole in situation flips. The work is best when we practice together, when we practice a lot together. I think another opportunity we've learned from COVID is by not being able to travel immediately to a place, we've been able to virtually engage with either the drill or with even actual uh, responses from the very get-go while we mobilize the team. That becomes a whole other cost-saving opportunity to include the likes of, of wildlife responders. None of us is as huge as the biggest Osros. Um, in some ways, we're the wildlife Osros and we're small, we're effective, we're cost effective. But if we don't get to play with the folks that we, we know is where our clients or even folks who would want to be able to call on us, uh, it, it minimizes the, the capacity to, to succeed as big as we could uh, if, we were, if we were doing that more. When we activate you for initial, that initial wildlife survey for mm -hmm for wildlife response. I, I, I've been referring to it as wildlife you know, rehabilitation, but I'm told we should really put, a, put it under a larger umbrella of wildlife response, right? So we have- You should. So we have, yeah. we, we have the initial survey, we have capture, we have rehabilitation, we have release. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. So you've got that. You've got yeah. exactly, JD. I was going to say that, and and um, you know, they, you mentioned it before. It's just not one of my favorite words, hazy, but so we call it deterrence. Um, and they have very effective deterrence for uh, whales, as you mentioned, the Okami pipes, um, and you know, it has to be. Um, they have to be used in such a manner by someone who's trained, let's say that, to be effective. And we're still learning that, aren't we? And so how to move these animals away from the oiled area. If you can't keep the oil from the animals, you try and keep the animals from the oil. So assessment, deterrence when it's possible. It is not the answer all the time, however. 
but you want to look at that opportunity. Capture, medical stabilization, transport, get them to rehabilitation. And by the way, our founder used to say, oil birds are not a laundry problem. It's not just about the cleaning. It really isn't. Everybody wants to wash birds, but you know, there is a mandatory 24 to 48 hour medical stabilization required because they need that rest and they need medical stabilization before they go through stressful washing. And then there's reconditioning for release. And then we work with the trustees to make sure that a proper and appropriate nest or a release site has been located. One that's clean, one that has, you know, all the, hopefully we can release them back to where we we captured them. And as JD said, then they're marked for a federal ban for life. And in Alaska, they have a, a metal ring on one side of one leg uh, with their federal banding uh, band number. And on the other side, a color band that says this bird has been rehabilitated from an oil spill. I just want to add to, to what Barbara's saying. Um, Dawn obviously is one of our, our key supporters and those Dawn commercials um, are about bird rescue. Um, however, they often get people cut to have kind of an oversimplified sense. You pour soap on the bird and it's done. That medical stabilization is absolutely critical. We talk about wash day as hopefully the, the one and worst day of that bird's life. They go through a lot of prodding and being restrained and um, some birds were, were even um, practicing with, with sedation, um, these high stress birds that are, are showing a better prognosis of getting through wash. You also think about the, the sort of um, secondary challenges that can come. Um, we work with these birds year round. I think it's one of the benefits of having uh, folks who, who work with these birds actively. In the last spill, we've had um, grebes and uh, grebes are renowned for getting what we call leaky grebe syndrome. It's essentially just a, a, a poor digestion situation that can can waste away the bird that has with much quicker actually than the oil. You could have washed it and lose the bird anyway because you have to be able to quickly respond. So keel lesions, foot wounds, um, all sorts of things that the kind of work that we do every day in our in our clinics allows us to react not only to the oil challenge, but to the other things that could secondarily take those birds um, from a success to, to uh, not surviving. It is sometimes an, a miraculous feat to get an animal through medical stabilization, through that worst day of its life of cleaning, and then back out to the pools um, and be 100%. They use Dawn, like off the shelf Dawn. Like yeah. I go to I go to Safeway and buy Dawn. Yeah, that yes. Part of um, Alice Berkner again. We we referred to her a few times. Um, she was brilliant. There were a few really key things that she kind of indoctrinated us all with. And and one is when you're doing a spill, you may not be able to bring that magic solution that you you perfected over time. She wanted something you could get at the grocery store most anywhere you go. Obviously, you can't get it just anywhere in the world, but um, you can't necessarily bring hundreds of gallons of, of your magic potion if that's what you were using. So she wanted something easily found, easily affordable, uh, and tested a whole lot of different things. Dawn turned out to be the one that was the most effective at the the um, temperatures that we, we do the, the wash at. So yes, yeah, so, 
I cannot tell you people walk through the center and it is almost always a jaw drop when they walk into the washroom, see the Dawn there and say, wait, you really, really use it? Yeah, we've been saying it for really? 40 years. We've, we've been and, using it. And, and Dawn, funny and Dawn is, is a supporter? Absolutely. They, they are they, a supporter, but I want it has to be very clear. We chased them for a very long time saying, your product is really effective for this purpose before they finally sort of caught on and realized, oh, actually, this is probably a really good story to tell. And now Dawn Saves Wildlife has been a campaign for, I don't know, at least 20, 30 years. And in the early days, they actually didn't tell their story ever to anyone. Uh, they knew we used it. They'd ship it to us, no problem. But they didn't tell anybody about it. They didn't want to be... they. They didn't want to be accused of, you know, exploiting the animals. We're like, but you do great stuff. And when Alice wanted something off the shelf, let me tell you, it's called Salvo in South America. Yes, it's Procter & Gamble. Yes, it's the same Dawn. It's called Yes in, uh, you know, in, on the continent in Europe. And um, it, it is fairy in England. And um, so, yes, it is available. We are, do other dish shops work? Yeah, probably they would. Do they work the same? The beautiful thing about the product we use is that it works at the exact, its highest efficacy is at the exact body temperature of the bird, which is exactly where we want to be, or a little higher than the body temperature of the bird, exactly where we want to be washing 106 to 108 degrees. JD, tell us about the facilities. You're gaining experience all the time because you're actually working with animals, not just waiting for an oil spill to happen. That's got to be a big advantage. Tell me about a that. Absolutely. And, and I can't go further without plugging partners. This would not be possible without partners. We work closely with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. We work very closely under a memorandum of understanding with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. We are a member, one of the founding members of the Oiled Wildlife Care Network. It's one of the ways I think California really does um, have a different game going with oil spill response. So these facilities, the two that we inhabit, actually are state-built facilities, uh, co-managed with uh, our friends at the Oiled Wildlife Care Network. We get to live in them and do our rehab year-round. Um, we see somewhere between 3,500 and 5,000 birds a year. Uh, biggest year was 2015, just a, a few rounds ago. Um, it, it, we see somewhere between 100 and 125 different species come in, uh, sometimes large-scale um, die-offs or uh, contamination events that are not oil. Uh, these kinds of things allow us to practice not only the, the one bird by, bird by bird care, but also the exact response capacity. So uh, very recently, just probably two weeks before we got activated for the oil spill in Orange County, we had just finished up a seven-week process rescuing uh, elegant tern chicks. Uh, they were nesting in a site in uh, uh, Bolsa Chica in Southern California, which oddly enough is actually a restoration site for an oil spill from 1990, uh, the American Trader, which Bird Rescue worked at as well. Um, those birds were probably disturbed by uh, an illegally flying drone that was crashed in their nesting site. 10,000 of them uh, abandoned ship all at once. And we basically, uh, they relocated to temporary barges in the harbor. Um, of course, 10,000 birds plus chicks hatching didn't provide enough room. 
they literally started falling off. So it's about uh, not only what happens in the facility now, it's also about responding to an acute crisis, activating our team, activating our friends, working very closely with the trustees who get to make the decisions. They maybe indoctrinate us to be able to do the work that we do so well. There were so many folks involved. And, and I think it really is one of the critical parts of the wildlife side of this spill response equation is that we all have to work together. Um, uh, Jenny, who was on a few weeks ago with Chris, um, they, we're, we're both part of a global oiled wildlife response system. The idea is 10 of the, the biggest uh, oiled wildlife organizations working together to figure out what happens when a spill happens in Nigeria or in a place where there, there isn't currently coverage. That day-to-day -day work um, pays off constantly. Um, and also, also when we go to a place where maybe we've never worked with the local dotterels, a shorebird, quite similar to, to maybe a plover, but not quite the same, that, that diversity of, of the work that we do allows us to adapt very quickly. Um, and, and I think it's really important to note that while a wildlife organization like ours could be considered a more focused form of OSRO, we don't get funding quite the same way. And so the, the working together and being able to um, benefit from donor support, uh, we are a nonprofit organization. We want to inspire people. That, that story we told earlier with the, with the ITER, I'm glad that you responded the way you did. It's part of our mission to inspire people to take action um, for, for balancing um, the natural world and, and do it by rescuing water birds in crisis. As I've said, we'll work with any, any animal in crisis uh, during a, an oil spill. And we're also sort of adapting to this new world where there's bigger and harder things. I want to say that preparation as well. Um, the work we had done previously a few years ago with the port, uh, the port of, of, of Los Angeles, port of Long Beach is actually the largest port in the United States. Not everybody knows that. Um, they commissioned us to do this project, which we called the Port Wildlife Imp uh, Mitigation, Impact Mitigation Study, looking at the ways that all of the industry and uh, recreation and things that go on in the port uh, were, in, were negatively impacting or impacted by, by animals. And that allowed us to have this baseline. So in addition to the work we're doing in-house, we're really looking for ways to go out, connect with more partners and be part of bigger, bigger solutions. And this, this is about being, um, being practical. You know, we don't have a bunch of member industry organizations paying our bills the way that an OSRO typically does. So we have to be creative, we have to be tenacious, and we have to always be adapting to whatever comes our way. Some, some of those responses, like the one with the turns uh, in Long Beach, are not paid for. Uh, we, we have to rely on our supporters and hope that, that enough um, comes in that we, we're better off for it and ready to go. Long term, we're hoping to build a uh, impact or wildlife emergency response fund that would allow us to respond to these uncompensated um, things just as quickly as we do an, an oil spill. So, because can you get funding from the from the federal oil spill trust fund, or is that not is wildlife not part it, of that? It really depends. It really depends. A few years ago, and Barbara was uh, Barbara was the sitting executive director when we the the mystery goose spill, um, something that happened in San Francisco Bay in early 2015. 
it was quickly noted not to be petroleum, which meant none of the protocols that activate a spill response could work. But what you had was literally contaminated birds beaching themselves just like you'd see in a spill. It just was not petroleum. And we, we needed to go through a whole process. Barbara was the one to make the call that yes, she believed our supporters would back us as we, we rolled out a full-scale response. There was somewhere around 300 birds at the time. Um, and ultimately it was a, a back and forth with the National Pollution Fund, but um, it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy, um, an easy challenge. There were, there were even efforts in the California legislature to try to expand the fund to pay for the kind of work that we're doing. Ultimately it was compensated, but that's never a guarantee. We will never get paid for the work that we did with those turns. We won't get paid for rescuing essentially 500 common MERS, uh, 2015, 2016, 2018, I believe a few hundred loons uh, affected by domoic acid poisoning in 2017. These kinds of challenges are year round. Um, and so it, it really is important to acknowledge the whole village it takes to make this work. And in this process, all of these skills, um, clinic staff who've maybe spent the last year and a half tucked away doing bird care um, during COVID, you know, no volunteers, they're now getting skills in the field. We're, we're literally training up our people on all of these uh, experiences and, and just hoping that it all stays on the right side of, of, of the, the budget system. Well, we're gonna need it. The big one in Washington is yet yet to come. And we, we, we yeah, I mean, we hope not, obviously, but we have to plan for that. That's you know my day-to-day or and this is a huge part of it there's nothing i mean we're gonna do a really good job of cleaning oil off the water we know how to deploy skimmers we know how to put out boom we know how to protect shore we know how to clean beaches we know how to do all of that that's going to happen but we're gonna see that you know picture of an oiled pelican that pelican keeps coming back that same pelican from the gulf from the gulf comes back it's famous world famous well it's part of our logo i did want to also add jd that uh, we have a turnkey facility in anchorage as well that is one we don't um we we don't staff unless we're activated for a spill or we use it for training but it is you know fully um ready literally turn on the lights and you're ready to take animals got a water system pools everything we need there and um that is the plan for spill, you know, oil impacted wildlife in Alaska would be to medically stabilize them and then transport them to that facility for rehabilitation. How about Oregon? What do you, do you have no a plan? facilities there. And needs Washington, some, needs Hawaii? There aren't any, uh, uh, there are, are no permanent facilities in Washington. They about 20 years ago, started to, uh, through WISMIC and, and, and of course, Department of Ecology, they have designed a m- more of a mobile system. And a uh, number of the big OSROs have as long, um, uh, as well as um, other organizations have all the wildlife equipment that, you know, basically Western shelter tents and baker tanks and pools that all come together and make a system. Now, you know, 
it's designed for up to a certain number of birds. And then after that, they'd be trying to find another solution. There aren't any permanent facilities. I think they didn't want to be trapped in a location, but we know a lot more today than we did ever before. So um, there's lots of room for planning, isn't there? I guess we've kind of planned for the idea that we need to move the rehabilitation center to the birds, as opposed to what you've just communicated, so that we can really move the birds to the rehabilitation yeah. center and maybe yeah. and maybe do a better job of, of support. What about I transporting them across borders? Can I send my birds yeah. from Washington to no. California? It is possible, and it, it speaks to how those pre preparations ahead of time, the discussions of what would happen. You know, I, I think of a few years ago, there was a, a transfer of birds from Nevada to yeah. California, botulism birds. So it's about having, knowing what the resources are and broader partnerships make all the difference. I, you, you see um, it's trust, you know, and, and sometimes it's the Coast Guard. You know, I know bird rescue, I trust them. Let's make this thing happen. It's all about having um, folks understand the dynamic. Yeah. I think one yeah. of the challenges, I go back to that wishing we were involved in war drills, is if folks don't understand how simple the solutions can be, it would never occur to them uh, to, to maybe suggest something like that. You know, it's not going to work everywhere. There there are, um, the trustees have to understand and 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 be um, deeply embedded with, with the folks who are going to be doing the work, uh, and that takes a lot of time. So, um, how do, how do you how do you build those relationships? It's doing work together. It's drilling together, and um, you yeah. know, showing up showing up always with solutions rather than um, with nothing. What do you need from me in the early hours? I call you. Um, I activate you on behalf of you know one of yes. one of your member clients. You know, I'm. I'm part of the spill management team for Alaska tankers, for polar yep. tankers, for you know many many others, and I'm activating uh, Osro resources from MSRC or Clean Rivers yep. Cooperative. Do I need to get boats for you? Do I need yep. planes for you? Is there yep. a list of things that you want me to mobilize <laughs> that you can provide me? Even in that well, first phone call, what do I need to do to get this this recon underway? You're an amazingly astute and experienced bill responder, Dan. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I think historically wildlife, when we look at who gets resources, we're way down at the list. And so we show up and we're like, wait a minute, my guys can't get out there. My team can't get out there to do the recon or to do that assessment without dedicated boats don't put us on somebody else's boat if it's not their mission okay because their mission might be source control you know lane boom whatever it's it's got to be a mission-driven vessel that's dedicated to us and um, might look different than than everybody else's needs you know we do well capturing in in skiffs and boats that are obviously appropriate appropriate for whatever waterway we're in but um, you know, the tend to we tend to use things like the rib boats because they're low to the water, they're easy to maneuver, they can get us into small spaces. And sometimes in places like Alaska, we need a platform vessel. It might be a decommissioned crabbing vessel, like we used in the Selendig. We had two of them set up. And our different our teams literally, because we couldn't get out to the spill site and back in a day, 
And so they lived on the vessel for days at a time and took launched their skiffs off the side every every morning to do that search and collection. So I'm going to say to you, oh, well, we're on the Columbia. Yeah, let's get, you know, the appropriate, I need boats for each of the team, or I need vehicles and boats, you know, we're going to put some in the water, we're going to have some on the land. And, um, you know, activate the Osro stabilization trailers, there are a number in Washington and Oregon. Um, but there, there's only a couple in Alaska. So yeah, that's an easy, you know. the wildlife trailers from the Osro are, that's an easy, that's, an easy, that's an easy yep. trigger to pull, right? I tell sure. the, I tell the MSRC response manager to roll the wildlife trail. I just need to tell them where to put it. But the yep. uh, initial sortie of vessels are all doing oil spill cleanup. You know, MSRC can facilitate getting the resources if I tell yes. them that's what I want. But, right. You, know, like, so you need me to say, I need, I mean, I think in, that's the problem. Every spill is so different. But you can almost always bet at some point we are going to need to be up in the air to do that wildlife assessment. So I think at some point we are going to need a fixed wing and, um, you know, we are going to need vessels, but what kind and how many, I think always comes down to what's happening with that individual spill and just keep talking about wildlife. Plan. So other commanders and other people in spill response management learn, you know, to, to think outside the box, like you so easily do, Dan, you're just like, well, let me think about that. We can use Kenmore Air or we can use... There are resources outside the spill response community who may well very well may very well be pulled into a uh, be very effective. You know, in a Fortunately, MSRC has done a really good job of putting together these um, you know vessel of opportunity yeah. you know, aircraft contracts. Yeah. So so as long as I ask them for what I want, yeah. they're pretty good at being able to get it for me. One aspect I just want to add to what Barbara is saying, Dan, um, in with your even your megaphone here, I think uh, reminding folks to get wildlife in early and get it in in a capacity that actually can can start doing the work, waiting until that horrible oiled pelican picture appears on yeah. on the cover of whatever magazine is already quite late. Um, I I think that we always appreciate. It, it, for some reason, the, the, the thought process is, is quite clear when it's the actual environmental response, the, the boom and all of that stuff. We want to go big and go fast. And I think sometimes there can be a little hesitation, um, despite the fact that we're one of the cheaper parts of the entire response. Um, it, it's really critical to go early. The, the chances of, of saving those animals go down very drastically over just a few days. Um, the, the critical... Uh, hypothermia and other challenges happen immediately once the birds are oiled. So um, Barbara always has has sort of drilled that into me. And I, I think if there's one thing you could do among your peers is is really remind folks that pull the trigger right away on, what, on wildlife. The and wildlife, when he talks the about public information officers, the other trigger I pull really fast, yeah. they yeah. have to... And then I need to hook hook the two of you together because I need that yes, wildlife message to get out there. I need the public to with, yeah. yeah to not be touching the animals, to know what yes. phone number to call. So getting you to talk to my PIO, getting making sure wildlife is part of those initial messaging 
uh, activities is super important. Absolutely, that's critical. And you know, getting the keeping the public away from the animals. I thought they did a great job with that in California in the recent spill. You know, we're always going to provide you someone who can speak knowledgeably about what we do for that PIO, so they can come right to that person and get the information and. You know, on big spills like uh, the Gulf, the PIO just said, look, we don't know what you do. Can you just assign one person? It was actually our director at the time, Jay Holcomb. He did an open media call every single day at one o'clock. I mean, there were 50 outlets sometimes that would show up. But what's critical about that is, you know, we do let them in, but we do it in a very controlled manner with someone from our team that can speak very knowledgeably about what's going on. The media can get their pictures, but... We, we really open, open it up like once a day, they can come through at a time when we're doing something because we're never gonna pick that animal up just so you can get a picture. So come in when we're doing something, we'll control that, but we'll also talk about the work we do so that they don't just make it up because they do if you don't tell them. Well, and JD, do you have any comments you wanna add in closing? I just wanna really remind folks that I think sometimes you can look at the wildlife responders as kind of the tree huggers. We're going to show up anyway. And I think the long-term sustainability, fortunately, the number of oil spills goes down. It is going down. However, the pressures on, on uh, all of us who do this kind of work, it's always expensive. It's always especially expensive when you've got animals and water that you have to be filter filtering through. So marine mammals, water birds. Um, these are, are huge challenges. So um, the industry remembering to support the organizations that they need on that darkest day. Our good friend Will Gala from Chevron, um, my favorite quote of his was, the first good news cycle that comes out of a spill is always a bird story, a bird release story, wildlife release. Really invest in that. Know that we are year-round training up the folks who are going to be necessary the pinch on us because our model is not built on a number of barrels, exposure, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's just a really important reminder that this whole ecosystem works best when we're all there, we're all strong, and we spend the time together practicing. Well, J.D. Bergeron, Barbara Callahan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to join us for the tactics meeting. I hope you found the guests and the information that they had to give us about wildlife response helpful. Please share it with your coworkers. Uh, feel free to use it in your training classes. Uh, it's completely uh, open and free to use. If you would like help with training, Hazwopper, crisis communication, drill design, please feel free to give me a call at 206-495-3805. We have a new email address for the podcast, and if you have ideas for the show or want to be a guest, you can email us there. The address is podcast at thetacticsmeeting.online. Thanks again. Until next time.